right. Uh, thank you, Praise Band. Thank you, Erica, for reading Scripture. Thank you for saying, thus says the Lord. Because this is not, this is not some fable or myth or story. This is God's Word uh, that we're diving into this morning. <clears throat> if you're new, we, uh, we've been working our way through uh, the first 12 chapters of John's Gospel, often referred to as the Book of Signs. And, and you'll notice that there are seven signs. John, uh, he has a pension for seven. There are seven signs. There are also seven I am statements. Uh, but we're walking through, and, you know, as, as uh, I was going to say, as luck would have it, we're going to look at the seventh sign, which is the raising of Lazarus on Easter Sunday. How perfect is that? Well, this morning, as uh, you noticed by our reading, we are moving on to chapter 3, where Jesus has a conversation with Nicodemus. How many of you have watched uh, any of the episodes on The Chosen? Okay, so some of you. Uh, Do watch that episode uh, where uh, Jesus is invited to chat with Nicodemus. Uh, He gives uh, some broad perspective there. Uh, Jesus ha- John has described some of the wonder of Jesus through signs worked both in Canaan and in, in Jerusalem. You remember that in chapter 2. Both deeds, the miraculous and the prophetic, unveil the glory of Christ, demonstrating how the coming Messiah not only replaces but also overwhelms traditional Jewish institutions. He offers something new and abundant and makes an absolute call on those who choose to follow him. Jewish ritual vessels like the stone jars with the water or the Jewish temple with the sacrificial system, both instruments of religious cleansing, now find their replacement in Christ. And Jesus glorified on the cross, the awaited hour, remember he said my hour is not yet come, would be the turning point in which Judaism discovers both its dissolution and its renewal. And it's the central focus of our renewal our spiritual rebirth as well. So anything that you are doing spiritually, religiously, traditionally, that's outside of Christ, I don't know how else to say it, but you're wasting your time. Because Jesus is the central focus of everything that has value. So let's talk about this Nicodemus. Who is Nicodemus? John 1.4 said, In him was life, and that life was the light of human beings. Jesus is that life. He does not merely replace religious institution. He comes to give life, hope, and renewal to people. And and John, it's interesting how he sets this story so nicely. At the very end of chapter 2, he says, For he knew what was in man, Anthropos. And then in the first verse of chapter 3, he says, Now there was a man, Anthropos, of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. So John is transitioning from chapter 2 seamlessly into chapter 3, and he's talking about men. And he's using that word Anthropos, men, not as male and female, but as not as strictly as male, but as all of us, humanity. He knows what is in us. He understands us. So Nicodemus steps forward not as a random observer of Jesus, but also as a representative of those in Jerusalem who had witnessed the work of Jesus in chapter 2. So he probably saw what Jesus had done in chapter 2 in the temple, and here he comes. He also represents an institution within Judaism 
the rabbis, or teachers of the law. Men specialized in knowing the law, who led synagogue worship and instruction, and who served as spiritual guides. It would be appropriate for us this morning to think of him as a representative for us as well. You see, if we hold the text at arm's length and it doesn't actually draw us in and speak to us, then, then again, to some degree we're wasting our time. It needs to speak to us. It needs to call us out. If asked what would Jesus say to someone in the dark with religious ambition, John would likely supply this narrative, saying Nicodemus was a man and he is everyone. One might wonder, as you read the text, if his theological skill became an obstacle to his ability to become a disciple. And folks, sometimes your intellectual ability, your logic, gets in the way. Your dependence on science and facts and all of that, sometimes it gets in the way. I'm not saying that it isn't important. Is there a comment here about our capacity to genuinely accept Jesus? Should Nicodemus serve as a mirror for some of us to see ourselves? I wonder if John would have us reflect on the connection between religious ambition and sophistication and our ability to see and hear a personal Jesus. I remember in Bible college, one of the things that we were warned about was be careful that you don't make the Bible a textbook. <laughs> don't, don't, don't make it just a textbook. Make sure that it draws you to the one that the Bible points to. The story of Nicodemus is another story in which Jesus continues to reverse the prominence of Jewish institutions. To replace them, to show their incompleteness in light of his arrival, to replace their function with his own life and work. It also begins a series of stories in which Jesus converses with the very people that he knows so well as he says at the end of chapter 2. Here he talks with a rabbi, Nicodemus. Then in chapter 4, he talks with a Samaritan woman. Then later on in that chapter, he talks to a Gentile official. And finally in chapter 5, he talks with a crippled man at Bethesda. Or Bethsaida. I don't think those are coincidences. I think that John is organizing that to include all of those different types of people. To me, the story of Nicodemus also serves as a twin with the Samaritan woman story that follows in chapter 4, just as the Cana story is a twin story to the temple cleansing in chapter 2. Nicodemus is a Jew, he's a man, and he's a member of high social strata. In chapter 4, we have a woman, a Samaritan, and someone of dubious reputation. Are those two events one after the other? Is that, is that the way things happen? No, I think John actually is organizing the events to make a point. Nicodemus is at the very top of the food chain, and the Samaritan woman is at the very bottom, and all of us are somewhere in between. You catch it? And Jesus came for everyone. He loves and he died for everyone. You are included between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. My paraphrase. Nicodemus could boast in his righteousness. The Samaritan woman stands as sinner. 
The irony of the comparison includes the relative success that Jesus discovers with each of them. Those that we would think would be least ready to understand and accept Jesus, the woman, embrace him. While the theologian who comes at night, Nicodemus, offers nothing but questions. Maybe John is telling us that all of us fall somewhere in between these two. I think in any case, every episode is designed to speak to John's audience using the uniqueness of different historical figures. The educated, the outcast, the poor, the wealthy, salvation is offered to all. John is not just putting stuff together. He's not just writing a diary. If you read John 20, 31, John writes to convert so that his readers will believe and by believing have life. And, and I'm not here this morning to waste your time. I'm not here this morning for any other reason than to call you to consider this Jesus if you haven't already done so. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to hide the fact that I would love nothing more than to have you, if you haven't done so yet, to discover this Jesus and embrace him yourself. Nicodemus' encounter with Jesus is a drama describing one night in Jerusalem as well as any possible night anywhere. No doubt Jesus and Nicodemus talk long into the night and not merely the two or three minutes it takes to read this chapter. And I think if you watch that episode on The Chosen, you'll see that to be true. John has developed a story here that represents the essence of the conversation. It doesn't include all of it. And in it, Nicodemus steps onto the stage three times to make inquiries in verse 1, 4, and 9. And each of these questions that he asks permit Jesus a fuller explanation of his views. And as often the case, the questioners often blissfully and ironically ignorant of what is being asked of him or her, leading to dramatic misunderstandings. That's not only Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman had the same challenges at the outset. And unless that deficit is met by faith or the Spirit, deeper penetration into the words of Jesus is impossible. So, so I'm also telling you this morning that if you're going to come at this with a purely logical, scientific approach, you probably won't be able to penetrate because the illumination of the Holy Spirit and the light of faith are necessary. Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin, in other words, the Jewish uh, ruling council. He was a Pharisee and a rabbi, a teacher, no doubt, of some fame. In fact, in 3 verse 10, Jesus refers to him as the teacher, not a teacher. So this must refer to his distinguished reputation in Jerusalem. And when this rabbi comes to Jesus at night, it may simply refer to his desire for privacy stemming from fear and worry that the temple authorities might see him as a collaborator. But there's more at work here. Remember John's focus on he is light. Jesus is light. He talks about light and darkness. So light, sorry, night is also a theological symbol expressing Nicodemus' spiritual relation to the truth. And all of us have to admit that until we embrace Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, we walked in that same night, that same darkness as well. And some continue to walk in that darkness. 
John often refers to darkness as a realm of evil, untruth, and unbelief. And it's interesting, in the New Testament, the only other actor who appears at night is Judas Iscariot, departing into the night to betray Jesus. So ironically, Nicodemus is a man of the darkness, while Jesus is the light. Hmm. Jesus is the light that has come into the world, but men and women prefer darkness, as we read. Nicodemus has to make a serious choice. He has stepped into the light to make inquiries. And today I'm urging you to step into the light as well. I'm urging you to consider Jesus. Nicodemus' first question in verse 2 shows admirable respect. He acknowledges Jesus as a teacher, and he gives him the benefit of the doubt. This opener that Nicodemus uses, he uses because he wants to engage Jesus theologically, to launch a discussion. And yet, in verse 3, Jesus' response is so unexpected. Why? Because Jesus is not interested in the divine verification of signs, but in the reality of one's relationship with God. He gets right to the point. He doesn't beat around the bushes. And Jesus talks to Nicodemus about what it means to enter the kingdom of God. So let's talk about kingdom access. Let's talk about kingdom access. Jesus says that there is a new prerequisite to see or enter the kingdom of God. He says that no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again or born from above. That can be translated a couple of different ways. Since Nicodemus sees it one way and Jesus means it another way, John here provides us with one of the first misunderstandings in his gospel. In order to enter the kingdom, to understand divine revelations such as this, one must have an experience that transports one beyond the mere observation of signs. There are a lot of people that saw miracles and signs and did not believe. Divine signs are unclear without divine aid. Jesus is driving at something comprehensive, a complete renewal of the whole person. We're not talking about touch-up paint here. We're talking about a complete transformation. Being born again, or rebirth, has to do with the spiritual, not the physical. And Jesus compares this experience with the wind. This is also a Greek wordplay, since the word pneuma can mean both spirit or wind. Spirit or wind, same word. Its origin and movements are mysterious. You and I don't know where the wind came from or where it's going. And they cannot be contained by human religious systems either. But Jesus has already challenged. We can't put him in a box. You can't put the Holy Spirit in a box. You cannot contain him. Nicodemus' final question shows that his religious categories have now been completely upended. He's baffled and disturbed, confused. His commitment to Old Testament law and obedience, to prayer and sacrifice, his understanding of election, responsibility, and privilege have all been challenged and upended. Really, he should have no problem understanding that the Spirit of God can transform. But he seems to be a man standing on a frontier, looking at a new country and wondering how such momentous events will unfold. 
And I'm here this morning to tell you that your choices today are similar. They're similar. Faith or disbelief and skepticism. Those are your choices. Unfortunately, the problem is deep. The problem rests on, a, on the refusal by many to receive Jesus' testimony and believe. And it's not really a problem of knowledge. The signs and scriptures are accessible here on earth, and if these cannot be understood and believed, it is not possible for profound heavenly things to be believed. Jesus explains to Nicodemus by referring to a story from Numbers chapter 21, in which Moses built a bronze serpent and elevated it amongst the Israelites, so that those that gazed upon it would be healed from the snake bites that they received in the desert. And Jesus says that in the same manner, he must be lifted up in order to become the source of eternal life for all who believe. To lift up describes Jesus ascending to the cross. The cross, which will simply, not simply be a place of sacrifice and suffering, but a place of departure, of return, when Jesus resumes his life with the Father. Jesus ascends to the cross, and it will actually be a place of glorification instead of defeat. Well, Diane had us read 3, verse 16 and 17, and replace that word world. I'd like to talk about the world a little bit. See, John's writing about the world isn't really a reference to the natural world of trees and animals and plants and all of that. For John, world, which appears 78 times in his gospel and 24 times in his letters, is the realm of humanity arrayed in opposition to God. Now, you heard me right. When John talks about the world, he's talking about humanity arrayed in opposition to God. And Jesus enters this world in his incarnation knowing very well that hostility will result and that sacrifice will be needed in order to redeem the world. Remember, it says he knew what was in man. He knew, he knew where we were at. Jesus did not come to the world to save a select few, the chosen, the privileged. He came to save the world, all of humanity, people who embrace darkness habitually, you and me. Jesus has not come to condemn the world, but to reveal, to save, to provide a way of escape for those enslaved in darkness. Those of us who see the light and recognize the tragedy of our own situation have one responsibility, and that is to believe. And I recognize it's not that simple. The affections of people in the world are corrupt. Their desires are fallen. They are not eager to be redeemed. As John says, they love darkness rather than light. In fact, he says they hate the light. That's strong language. Uncovering something of the seriousness of the moral struggle between God and the world. I'd like to quote uh, Sosenitsyn, the Russian writer, who says, It was only when I lay there on rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Gradually it was disclosed to me that the lines separating good and evil pass not through states, not between classes, not between political parties either but right through every human heart. 
and through all human hearts. I nourish my soul there, and I say without hesitation, bless you, prison. See, the evil runs through every human heart. We're all infected. We all face that challenge. And, and none of us on our own can actually win the victory against that reality. Evil and darkness do not ignore the light. They wage war against it, trying to bring it down. I suspect that this should be pretty obvious to us, and I won't get into it, but I think as we look around us, sometimes some of us struggle with not being too pessimistic or fearful. Despite these efforts, the darkness can't vanquish light. It can't. So let's talk about real transformation. After all, that's what we want, is real transformation. By contrast to the world, those who love the coming of the light, who look on and trust the upraised, crucified Son, who believe in Jesus and live by the truth, not only enjoy eternal life, but come to the light and yearn for its truth. John is describing what happens when those in the world make the choice to believe. They are transformed into children of God, experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit and living in the truth. Jesus must step into the darkness itself to, in order to redeem those captive to it. In fact, he says when he's challenged about who he's partying with, he says it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners. The irony of that statement is that the very people challenging him, the very Pharisees that were so legalistic, were the ones that were actually the sickest. And isn't that often the case? When we build up our own self-righteousness, we fail to see the weakness in our armor, and we fail to see the goodness and righteousness that is being offered to us. God is not demanding some moral or religious preparation from us to make us acceptable. On the contrary, his mission is to enter darkness and to find us. Jesus is the light looking in the darkness for men and women who will become children of God. Jesus is not simply another human teacher who outdoes one of the Jewish uh, leading rabbis. He's not simply a superior human expositor of scripture who can outrun any rival in debate. He is a divine teacher and a revealer of God. And as 1.18 says, no one has seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. So the importance of Jesus is not found simply in what he says, but in where he comes from. And in who he is, Jesus has descended from heaven. No other source can rival what is claimed here for Jesus. He provides access to God that is unlike any other religious founder. So Jesus is challenged to Nicodemus to be born again, to be born from above, makes a fundamental statement about humanity. Humanity is broken beyond all repair. God's work in the world is not a question of fixing the part, but rebuilding the whole. It's nothing short of another birth, a rebirth, a total transformation. The problem with humanity is not that we sin, but that we are in a state of sin that needs a comprehensive solution. Nicodemus, as well as anyone in the world, including us, lives with this infirmity. 
The transformation that God offers opens a question regarding the nature of true religion. Religion is not necessarily a matter of personal knowledge or ethical behavior. Nor is it fidelity to religious traditions, no matter how virtuously they evoke high ethical behavior. Jesus claims that true spirituality is not discovering some latent capacity within the human soul and then fanning it to flames. It's not uncovering a moral consciousness that is hidden by layers of civilization's corruption either. It's not a horizontal experience built on the materials available to us. Rather, Jesus claims that true religion is vertical. It has, it has to do not with the human spirit, but with God's spirit. It's a foreign invasion, a saboteur, sabotage of the first order. True religion unites humanity with God's powerful spirit, who overwhelms, transforms, and converts in the highest meaning of the word. Our role in this transformation is belief. And yet, it is belief aided by God's work within us since we live in the darkness. And we have our spiritual capacities handicapped by sin. There's a second message here as well, having to do with cultural and intellectual bondage. There's really good DNA there. There's a link between spiritual receptivity and the degree to which we are settled into a system of life and belief. The greater our comfort, the less our chances to receive a new word, a transforming word from God. This is probably the reason why as people age, the possibility of conversion seems to decrease. I didn't say it's impossible. Our arena of comfort also has to do with the scope of our religious knowledge. Nicodemus' problem was not a lack of knowledge. In fact, his great knowledge, in some fashion, might have anesthetized him from true spiritual conversion. You've heard me say, I know what I believe, but I hold an open hand, because if I hold it in a clenched fist, not even God can teach me anything. So often, our, our own intellect gets in the way. Open your hand. Open your hand. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have any conviction. But I'm saying that conviction has to always be open to God's work in your life, to the possibility of change. Religious knowledge can become a shield, a defense with which we protect ourselves from the very God we claim to know. Professional observers can talk about Jesus without experiencing him. They can give lectures without the transforming spiritual experience. They can know all about wine without having tasted it. There are likely people in the church today or online listening in who have not really heard the Nicodemus story. They've grown up in their tradition. They've taught and defended it. But it's become, it has become a tame and predictable thing. Hmm. In my reading in Lectio 365 this last week, we've been talking about a wild god. He's unpredictable. Yes, in his character, he's predictable because he's consistent. But he's not boxed in. He's not limited by your perceptions and mine. It's possible to get one's theology right, but get one's relationship with God all wrong. Hmm. One can harness the spirit no more than one can harness the wind. 
Jesus shares the very essence and being of God, and the cross is God's work. Jesus came to earth not in order to change God's mind, but to express God's mind. And belief means far more than mere intellectual assent. Rather, it means placing your life and trust in complete surrender to the one that you believe. God's gift in Christ, not sincere, aggressive human religiosity, is the door to divine acceptance. Personal trust, exclusive trust, ultimate trust in Jesus as the Messiah is fallen humanity's only hope. It's your only hope, and it's my only hope. This passage illustrates in dramatic terms the necessity for decision and commitment. As 151 said, heaven is open for those who can see. The word is made flesh for those who can perceive grace and truth, 1 verse 14. A bright beam of light is shining which will expose the truth of God as it is seen in Jesus. It is quite plain, I think, that God desires a relationship, not mere obedience to commandments. Like a father, he wants a loving trust, not fear. When any person ex exercises faith in Christ, the resulting life can only be described as having come from being born all over again. A birth from above. It applies to those of us who are dead in trespasses and sin and who need God's grace gift of salvation purchased by Jesus on the cross of Calvary, a gift that you and I can't earn, can't buy, can only accept by faith. The birth from above depicts a process that can only proceed from God, enabling a Christ follower through proper understanding and acceptance of God's word to achieve faithfulness in this life and participation in God's kingdom. New birth, being born again, is an act of God in each of our lives. So this morning, if you have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and yes, he doesn't want to be only your Savior and not your Lord. Those two go together like two sides of a coin. It's both and, not either or. If you've never trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, will you consider the prompting of the Holy Spirit as he speaks to your heart today? Will you pray a prayer of repentance and faith and become a new creation in Christ? Remember what he said. To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So whether you're watching us on live stream this morning, or whether you're sitting here with me this morning, if you have not made that decision, I'm calling you to decide. You, you see, it, you don't actually get to not make a decision because it just... It's either a decision for or it's a decision against. There is no middle ground here. And, and yes, maybe, maybe you have some unanswered questions. Uh, Jesus didn't just disregard Nicodemus' questions. He responded to the question. Uh, maybe you have unanswered questions and you'd like to talk to someone. Uh, you can find me here during the week other than Friday. Uh, 
maybe there's someone else that you'd rather talk to in the congregation, find someone and, and ask those questions and have them answered. Because what you do with Jesus has eternal consequences. I don't know how much stronger I can say that. Eternal consequences. And I remember, uh, I remember a, a time when some of the youth would say in their honesty that they didn't really want to become baptized and become members yet because then they'd have to behave a certain way. As if you're able to be a Christian, but then baptism and membership, uh, you know, tightens the screws. I also remember a gentleman in Colama, in Nicaragua, in one of the villages, who uh, every time one of us shared the gospel with him, he said that, you know, when he retired, when he became 65 or whatever, then, then he would do that. And I still remember that, that one day he all of a sudden got a goiter. I don't know how to explain it, but it was this growth of a muscle around the throat or whatever, and it scared him to death. He got saved. <laughs> God did him a favor. What I remember most is that the 10 years that he lived after that, the first thing out of his mouth was a lament that he hadn't accepted Christ sooner. Because he realized that actually making that decision was in his best interest. That he wasn't sacrificing his life. He was actually encountering true life and peace and joy and happiness. And, and so his, his testimony after was, oh man, I should have done this a lot sooner. Look what I've all missed. So if you're sitting here this morning or if you're joining us, I want to invite you to make that decision. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to invite Stanley and Diane up to see if there are some comments or questions uh, that we need to respond to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, it, it's really hard for us to describe the greatness of your love, a love that would send your one and only Son to redeem the lost. And uh, so often, even after we've made a decision to accept you and follow you, we tend to wander. And we ask that you would continue to draw us to yourself. I pray for those that, that are battling with this decision this morning, those that have not yet crossed the line into accepting you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would continue to knock on the door and draw them to yourself. Thank you for what you've done for us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the first one is a comment. All paths can lead to Jesus. Only Jesus can lead us to eternal life with God. Unfortunately, that comment, all paths lead to Jesus, in Latin America, they always just say, oh, we all believe the same thing. We all go to Jesus. But uh, you can't believe opposites and still end up at the same place. Yeah, I don't have context for that comment. Uh, if, if that comment refers to those three positions, 
Uh, one is exclusivism, meaning, which is the traditional position that I grew up with, meaning that when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, he said it, he meant it, it's true, end of story. So I believe that. Exclusivism is that position. Inclusivism is the idea of anonymous Christians, people that get in the back door, because according to that position, those that have never heard, of course, that's not fair. So if they've never heard, then they get in the back door as anonymous Christians. If that position would be true, we should yank all the missionaries off the field. We should never tell anyone about Christ, because at least then they'd get in the back door. I don't believe that position. The follow-up, the third position, which ends up being the result of going down this nasty road, is pluralism, which means all roads lead to Rome. So every well-meaning Hindu, Buddhist, uh, uh, Taoist, uh, Muslim, Sikh, by being well-meaning and everything, they all end up, we all end up going to the same place. Uh, as, as Diane said, two opposite comments can't both be true. Uh, so we won't, we won't get into a battle over world religions this morning. I will continue to stand on, on what the Bible says about Jesus being the way to God. Yeah. Stanley, do you want to say something about that? No? No? Okay. <laughs> uh, the next one is, a, if, you, if it is helpful, could you please elaborate on verse 8? Just happen to know that by heart. Oh, yeah, I've got the whole Bible memorized. Well, then you're a good Jew. <coughs> oh, thank you. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Uh, Jesus is trying to use an analogy to help Nicodemus understand something. And so he goes from the understood to the spiritual application. So Nicodemus understands that wind, he doesn't know where wind comes from, and he doesn't know where it's going, but he can feel it and he can hear it. In other words, he won't deny the reality of wind, he just can't explain where it comes from or where it's going, okay? So Jesus uses that analogy about wind and says, so is everyone born of the Spirit. The Spirit's work in your heart and life. You cannot logically explain, I don't think, this whole thing about salvation in terms of what the Holy Spirit does in your heart and life when you accept Jesus' work on the cross for you. Can you explain how and why God calls one person to pump gas, another person to the mission field, and another person uh, to pastor, and another person, etc., etc.? Uh, th there are a lot of things that, that you and I can't explain fully, um, and the Holy Spirit works in our life in that way. Any, any thoughts, Stanley? Yeah. To your mouth. To your mouth. Hold the mic here, sir. <coughs> yeah. Um, the first time I read this scripture, I, it got me thinking a lot. Uh, but I, I got to understand that what, what Jesus is saying there is uh, the spiritual life cannot be logically understood. Okay. Um, yeah, the same way you, you cannot tell where the wind is coming, you don't know where it's going, but you feel that, yeah, there is a wind, uh, like you feel the presence of the wind. That's how God's work in the life of a believer is. You don't understand what God does with you and in you, but you just see him working. It's, it's like what the word of God does um, in a man's life, 
I once was talking to a man preaching about Christ and, and he kept smoking in my face. And he would, he would drag the cigarette and, and pump it up. And I know he was looking for two things. I'm going to get angry and walk away or I'm going to say, hey, this guy is a condemned sinner. But then, the more he pumps the cigarette, the more I smiled at him and I'm telling him Jesus loves him. And after a period of time, he's like, are you not angry? Angry at what? And I'm smoking in your face? No. Uh, I've tried to stop this thing, and, and, it, and it's not working. I say, you cannot stop it. You cannot stop it because it's not, it's not in you to stop. Because if you can stop it, then you don't need Jesus. You cannot stop it because it's only him that can do a work in your life. That, that you stop it. And, and that's why we, we must stop this gospel of you need to be pious before you come to him. You need to stop stealing. You need to stop doing this. You need to stop dressing anyhow. You need to stop talking anyhow. You, need to, you, you cannot do it on your own. And that's why the door is open. Come the way you are. When you get to where he is, why you, he works on you and works with you. On your own, you discover you stop lying. You, you stop stealing. You, like you just wake up to discover that this is a new me because the work is a continuous work. Yeah. And that work will not stop till we meet him. And that's why you don't, you don't get to a point in Christianity where I'm there. I'm just that believer. No. It's a continuous work. And you don't know how that thing works. It is God who does this work. Mm -hmm. and, and Philippians chapter 2, I think verse 11, the Bible says, now, if the first part of it says, um, work at your own salvation with fear and trembling. Then, then the, the next verse answers that, that word. He says it is the Lord who wills. He, he wills in us and he does the things mm. in us. Because you cannot work at your salvation. Mm. All that is required for you is to love and trust. Is to trust him. When you trust him, he does the work. Okay? Good. To the end, I'm just going to read the comment. It's not a question as well. And I think from then, then we can go unless you want to elaborate. I think it's amazing to think that God orchestrated the Greek word to be the same for wind and spirit and how that an analogy could be used to explain the Holy Spirit to non-believers. God is so, is so many moves ahead of all of us. Yeah. What more do we Thank need you. to say? Yep. Praise God. Why don't you come up? Thank you, Stanley. Thank you.